This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Finlay, scholar, author, professor of religious studies at Louisiana State University, specializing in African-American religion and an all-around love nova. I'm still your host, Stuart Davis. No, no, where have you been? Where? Oh, have you been there? That's not what your locator beacon said. Enough on your specious whereabouts. On this episode, the engrossing rabbit hole of UFOs and the Nation of Islam. This blew my mind. UFOs are a pillar of this religion, and not in the manner we're accustomed to. Did you know, for instance, Farrakhan said his mother tried to abort him three times? Did you know there's a cross-pollinating in training methodologies between Scientology and the Nation of Islam? You're about to get a crash course in that and much more, I promise you. This is not typical UFO fare. But first, Dr. Finlay highlights some ways the Nation of Islam has been misread. I often say that the Nation of Islam is probably the most misunderstood religion in America. They're even more misunderstood than Mormons. I mean, I mean <laughs> they really are. And, and, and part of it is, of course, the racial aspect of it, how they get viewed, how they are seen through a, a racial lens, which obscures the complexity of the religion. The, the second part of that, Stuart, is scholarship. Scholars don't deal much with what we would probably call the paranormal aspects of the Nation of Islam and the subject of UFOs. And again, part of that is probably related to the, the first point as well. They're overdetermined by a racialized lens, and people want to see them as a political group, even scholars, and not so much as a religious group. And that has a long history going back to the early 1960s with the two books that came out on the Nation of Islam, Sirach Lincoln's Black Muslims in America, Duke University Press, 1961, where he basically, Sirach Lincoln, that is, viewed the Nation of Islam through a sociological lens that overdetermined race. And a year later, E.U. Isian Udom, a Nigerian scholar, who was studying at the University of Chicago, published his dissertation on the Nation of Islam called Black Nationalism, of course, a political term, right? And I believe Isin Udom was also in political science. And so you put those two together and they have really informed the trajectory of studies on the Nation of Islam that for me are enormously problematic. I don't see the Nation of Islam even as a black nationalist group. And yet it's seen as granted that they are black nationalists. So they're even viewed again through this racio-political lens that I wanna jettison in order to get at some of the questions that you're asking me today, in particular about UFOs, which most scholars and folks in the public, the popular public, don't know what to do with. And I've been arguing in my work for more than a decade now that one can't even understand the nation of Islam without engaging these UFO discourses. I'll stop there because I think you asked me to talk about that, but I'll see if there's a particular question that might send us in a direction about the UFOs that you may want to ask. Yeah, that's where I was hoping to begin. First, the cultural sociological misread, the broad mischaracterization of the religion as a whole. 
And two, the fascinating way in which the religion's backbone is the esoteric occult thread of ufology. Yes, and I would say it's, it's everything you said, esoteric, occult, UFO. You find all of those ideas in the Nation of Islam. So I should also say, Stuart, that to a small extent, the Nation of Islam acknowledges some of that. To a larger extent, they have obscured those very aspects in lieu of a more scientific presentation of themselves. So the Nation of Islam wants to see this mother wheel, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, as a literal craft that was actually built in 1929 in the Japanese islands by Master Fard Muhammad and Japanese scientists who were also understood as black. I want to be clear about that. Race is actually quite complicated in the nation of Islam. And so I've been in conversations with them, some very cordial, and we just disagree on this. I think religion is the better lens to understand things like the mother wheel, which Farrakhan says we would understand as a UFO, than science. But I also have to say, I also understand why science is an important trope for them. Historically, African-Americans have been viewed as people who were intellectually inferior. And this is throughout the West, in philosophy, historical studies, 19th century ethnology, and so on. And for the Nation of Islam to privilege science as the most appropriate lens through which to view what they call the mother wheel or these UFO narratives is perfectly understandable. Because for them, this mother wheel, as Minister Farrakhan calls it, is the height of technology, which can't be matched anywhere on the planet. If you see where I'm going, so it says something counter that disrupts the idea of black inferiority, since there is no technology ever on this planet that for the nation of Islam can match the technology of the mother wheel, not even NASA. And so Elijah Muhammad, who was the early prophet of the nation of Islam, uh, which was founded in 1930, that's their day. In fact, July 4th. So there's some symbolism for you, 1930. And Elijah Muhammad took over about 1933, claiming to have spent most of this relationship in sort of a master disciple situation where he was taught all the secrets of the universe from Master Fard Muhammad, the founder, who was also God for the early nation of Islam. And so here you have this very secretive, esoteric circumstance in which secret knowledge passed from Master Fard Muhammad to Elijah Muhammad. And Elijah Muhammad claims that part of that, in addition to the origins of the, the universe, the origins and meaning of the races, the true meaning of Freemasonry, all of these kinds of things included this UFO narrative. Elijah Muhammad lived until 1975, died February 20-something, 1975, and his son, Wallace Muhammad, took over. Sort of a strategic move. Minister Farrakhan, I believe, expected to be the successor, and so did many people. It appears that the person who was the minister of Temple Number no. 7 in Harlem, which was one of their major temples outside of the temple in Chicago, which is their headquarters, was seen as the next up or the number two man, as they used to call Malcolm, Malcolm X. 
And so Minister Farrakhan was in 1975, the minister of this temple, number seven in Harlem, and in some ways was outmaneuvered by Wallace Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad's son, who actually used other occult ideas to frame how he was the rightful heir to his father. One of the things he said was that he was a seventh born son of Elijah Muhammad. So how about that for some occult symbolism, right? But he really outmaneuvered and even threatened Louis Farrakhan. And that nation of Islam no longer exists because Wallace Muhammad, who became Warwick Dean Muhammad as he embraced a more, I hate using terms like orthodox, I don't think they really correspond to anything helpful in the world, but a more global, mainstream, accepted form of Islam, changed his name, like I said, to Warwick Dean Muhammad. And he moved the nation of Islam to a form of Sunni Islam, changing the name several times. One of the names was World Community of Islam in the West, and then the American Muslim Mission, and so on. And so the nation of Islam that we understand now, led by Louis Parkhan, is really a new nation of Islam. Uh, right around 1977, then into 1978, Minister Farrakhan announced privately to Brock Peters, who was an African-American actor, that he was considering reconstituting the nation of Islam since Wallace had basically corrupted it. I should also note there were also many other groups claiming succession. Many of them are still in existence today that are distinct and even rival groups to nation of Islam under Minister Farrakhan. So there is no one nation of Islam. There are actually multiple. But we're talking about the one under Louis Farrakhan. So Louis Farrakhan takes the remnant of a few people who are members under Elijah Muhammad, and basically everyone else was a new convert. And they had always had converts from churches and other places. So when we talk about the nation of Islam, we're really talking about a new group that was founded in the late 1970s. So that's roughly 1978. On September 17th, 1985, which was a Tuesday, I looked that up recently because I, I just wondered what day of the week was that? It was a Tuesday. <laughs> Minister Farrakhan says that he took a trip to Mexico to climb the ruins of Quetzalcoatl, which he says he had done on many occasions. On this occasion, he said he had a vision, not a dream, but something much more real that the Nation of Islam frames, and this is their language, was closer to an out-of-body experience. So a real experience that would have included some kind of astral projection and these other, they don't call it that, but I'm saying it would be akin to that. And in this vision on September 17, 1985, Minister Farrakhan says that he was taken into a smaller vehicle, one of the baby wheels or baby planes that comes out of this bigger mother wheel, because in the nation of Islam, it has 1,500 baby planes or baby wheels within it. So one of these wheels came over the ruins, according to Minister Farrakhan, and summoned him into it. And he heard this voice because he was afraid and he was about to call for his companions. And the voice, according to Farrakhan, said, not them, just you. So this craft, as he describes it, comes over the mountain where the ruins of Quetzalcoatl are and takes him into it where he heard the voice of Elijah Muhammad. He reports. He also reports 
the presence of Master Fard Muhammad, who was the founder in 1930, who for Elijah Muhammad was also God. And for Louis Farrakhan, at least earlier, was God as well. And a voice, according to Farrakhan, communicated cryptic messages to him, at least two different messages, that took some time after this experience for Farrakhan to make sense of. He said he heard Elijah Muhammad's voice coming from a speaker, quote unquote speaker, as clear, Stuart, as you're hearing me today. He makes that kind of reference. He talked to the crowd. He said, just like you're as clear as you're hearing my voice right now. And the voice was a warning that President Reagan, Colin Powell, Joint Chiefs of Staff, were planning a war against Black people and Black youth under the guise of extremely urgent national security, and that it would be framed, listen to this, as a war on drugs, right? <laughs> and a war against Black youth, again, under the, the trope Crips and Bloods. And I want to say, it'd be curious to see if in September 1985, if the war on drugs was actually a thing yet. I haven't given that any time, but I find it interesting. Because this is what he says was the message from Elijah Muhammad. The second message was also that these same folks, Colin Powell, George Bush, Ronald Reagan, were planning a war against Gaddafi, which happened. Again, I don't know where the timing was. That's something we'd have to take a look at. All right. So fast forward to October 1989. Minister Farrakhan holds a press conference at the JW Marriott in Washington, D.C., where he reveals this to the world. He had already been talking about it in his group among the Nation of Islam, but this is the public press conference, which you can find online. It's called The Announcement, and you should be able to find a transcript of it if, you, if you'd like to read it. I refer to it in detail in my forthcoming book on the Nation of Islam. And he describes in this press conference just what I'm telling you, his experience in the vision, in Mexico, on Tepozeco Mountain, in Tepoztlan. And he tells the folks, I'm not a nut. I'm not crazy, like you may want to call me. And the proof of this is that you will see these UFOs all over American cities as a testament to my truthfulness. And I would add to his calling as a sage and prophet for, for our age, because he does see himself as part of the lineage and community of, say, Abraham, Muhammad, Jesus. Farrakhan understands him as part of this community. He's a prophet for our time who exists for to save America, oddly enough, or as a conduit for its destruction if it doesn't turn from its evil ways, which also sounds familiar. Folks would be surprised. Some similar things Martin Luther King said actually about America, that America would be destroyed if she didn't turn from her evil ways. We tend to ignore those kind of pronouncements from Dr. King or else we couldn't have a King Day. <laughs> people, people would be too angry to celebrate someone who said that kind of radical prophetic utterance. And so that was 1989. All right. So I can add some detail, but I want to say one other thing, and then we'll see where, where you are, where you want us to go. Keep in mind, Stuart, that I said that there were other nations of Islam 
that there were competing groups led by people like Silas Muhammad, who still has a group called the Nation of Islam, John Muhammad, the brother of Elijah Muhammad, Royal Jenkins, who started a group called the United Nation of Islam, who left actually before the death of Elijah Muhammad. I think he started his group in 1973. Elijah Muhammad died in 1975. And many other groups. There's One Nation of Islam led by a person who calls himself the Son of Man. That's his title. And then, of course, there's the 5% Nation of Islam, which was founded around 1963, 1964 by Clarence 13X at the time. They call him Father Allah in the Nation of Gods and Earths, also known as 5%ers today. And so there are all these groups and others. So I also argue that part of this public pronouncement about of Farrakhan, about his experience of having been in the presence of Elijah Muhammad and hearing from him 10 years after his death, while also being in the presence of Master Fard Muhammad was what I want to call an authorizing event. In other words, this tells us who is the true heir to Elijah Muhammad and his teachings and the Nation of Islam. Because none of these other folks who are leading these groups called the Nation of Islam can claim this kind of experience. And so that's not to deny that something actually happened that was real for Farrakhan. It's simply to say that there also was a, a sociopolitical aspect to it as well. You have all these other people claiming to be the, the true heir to Elijah Muhammad and to be the true Nation of Islam. And here Farrakhan has said, I heard from Elijah Muhammad directly. And I have received these prophetic utterances from him that make me the sage and prophet and the true leader of the nation of Islam. So I'll pause there and see what your thoughts are. Yes. Utterly fascinating. One of the most compelling and singular historical arcs of these realms. I wonder if we could tighten a few bolts around the origin stories. It's 1929 or 1930 when Muhammad builds the wheel the master mother wheel that contains the other 1,500 wheels? And these are military vehicles. These 1,500 wheels are bombing planes. And so it's, it's really complicated because this is also tied to their mythology, you know, their creation stories, and so on. I'll say a few more things because I think you had more to say and add. And this is where I differ in terms of my interpretation from members of the Nation of Islam, because I want to see the mother wheel as the last part of what I divide into five parts. That is their creation story, their mythology, as a really important symbolic narrative that helps them to explain black suffering, white racial terror, slavery, lynching, and so on. The Nation of Islam wants to see this as history and science. Like, this is literally true. This is literally what happened. And I'm saying it's actually quite important, even as a mythology. But just so you know how my reading differs from members of the Nation of Islam, even though I see this as a really, really important narrative, as an attempt to try to explain a really absurd world where, where Black people were just catching hell for their entire existence just because they're Black. And so this narrative attempts to make the world coherent and give Black people transcendence 
where it, it otherwise makes no sense. And there's really little and few opportunities to make this world meaningful. It's interesting that in that narrative, these particular craft are made by humans. And then, I guess, ostensibly are in orbit, in proximity to the planet? Correct. According to the mythology of the nation of Islam, and specifically Elijah Muhammad, the mother wheel periodically comes into the Earth's atmosphere, but really exists about two miles above the Earth. Farrakhan, for example, says the mother wheel protects him. And he often claims that it's present when he speaks on important occasions, like at their 90th anniversary on July 4th, 2020, which I talk about in the afterword of my book. I'll say one other thing about that. This is really going to sound new agey. The Nation of Islam also, they make these trips to Sedona, Arizona. How about that? And they call that Project Exodus. And they're always going to Sedona, Arizona. And it was a few years ago, you can probably find it on YouTube, I can't remember the year, when Minister Farrakhan was in Sedona, Arizona, and he was talking about the death of Kobe Bryant. And somehow he connected the death of Kobe Bryant to the mother wheel in that while he was giving this speech in honor of Kobe Bryant in Sedona, Arizona, he claimed that the mother wheel was present. So he's always saying the mother wheel is around him because it protects him. And this mother wheel tells us something about who Minister Farrakhan is, according to him. I can't leave you hanging right there. I have to say something about that. Minister Farrakhan was born, I believe, in 1933, Caribbean mother. He was born during a time in which his mother and father were split up. And so his father was not the father of his older siblings. He was conceived while his father was away by another man and said that his mother tried to abort him three times. Minister Farrakhan says that her attempts to abort him scarred him for life and was also responsible for some of the missteps that he's made in his life, including when Wallace Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad's son, outmaneuvered him to take over the nation of Islam. When he had this experience that he tells us about in 1985, he emerged from this mother wheel, a new person. It's almost like he was reborn. Think, think about the symbolism, going inside the mother coming away from it, the sage and prophet. And so this mother wheel, according to Farrakhan, tells us who he really is over against an experience that was traumatic for him as a child where his mother didn't even want him. So some of that is sort of psychoanalytic, but I actually do think he sees this mother wheel in some ways as his mother, symbolic, and as sort of a symbol or craft because for him, it's a reality that really tells us who he really is, not all this other stuff, not this historical and social stuff. That's, that's what I wanted to clarify. It's an important set of themes to underline. If he was outmaneuvered earlier in life, this begins to look like the orchestrated sequence of a chess master. Circling back a bit, you had referenced how the construction of the mother wheel involved transmission of secret teachings. Woven in there was the true meaning of Freemasonry. Can you speak to that a bit? How does that factor? Yes. So 
Freemasonry has always been really important to the Nation of Islam, but going back to 1929, this is the Nation of Islam's narrative for when the mother wheel was created. So the mother wheel was created before what became the Nation of Islam was actually founded, a year before. So in the narrative of the Nation of Islam, you have all of these sources, what's called the story of Yakub. Yakub spelled Y-A-K-U-B and Y-A-C-U-B variously, was this black scientist, this God scientist, which is how they understand angels, by the way, as God scientists in their mythology, was dissatisfied for a number of reasons, including the fact that there wasn't a unified language among the original people, which I should also unpack later. He sought to destroy the original people, i.e. the black people. And by seeking to destroy them, he engaged in this genetic engineering process, which took 600 years, basically, to create white people. But along the way, from these black germs, what they called them, genes, you also had red, yellow, brown that were grafted out until ultimately you're left with white. And this is said to explain why white people are so violent historically toward black people, because they weren't created, they were made in this artificial process by the scientist Yakub, whose goal was to destroy black people. So in the same narrative that some people call the Yakub story or the Yakub myth, Elijah Muhammad talks about the symbols of Freemasonry actually being about race and revealing the, the truth about race and the universe and the nation of Islam. And I want to go back and say that what's important here is to note that whether Master Fard Muhammad actually came up with this narrative and taught it to Elijah Muhammad, or whether Elijah Muhammad embellished and added some of this himself, what we see are multiple streams of ideas that fashion this narrative, which I Again, say, I divide it into five parts with five things. Don't ask me to remember them off the top of my head. But this thing about the UFO and the mother wheel is part five. It's the last part of this narrative. And so when I read the narrative, which I actually had to put together in my book in chapter one, because it's in little pieces and speeches all over the place. One of the things I notice is that there are streams that sound like theosophy. I'm sure they are that come from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. I'm sure that's pretty explicit and clear. That come from science fiction and probably early race films and science fiction films that obviously come from various Christian traditions and black churches. And so you have this enormously complicated mix of all of these things, including Freemasonry, put together and out of all those sources, crafting this coherent narrative that tries to make sense of the world. And again, Freemasonry is, is one of those. I say that because it appears that Master Fard Muhammad, who started the Nation of Islam, was either a fan of or was part of many of these organizations. He was probably a Mason. He appears to have contact, according to one source, with a close colleague of Chatterjee, a Bengali theosophist, while Master Fard Muhammad was in San Francisco. They also, both Elijah Muhammad and Master Fard Muhammad, 
appear to be really big fans of Charles Taze Russell and Judge Rutherford, early Jehovah's Witness pioneers. And there are literal and explicit instances where it's pretty clear to me that what they're saying they got from Jehovah's Witnesses in their mythology. And so Freemasonry is in there too. But the bigger point I think I wanted to make is that you see the influence of a lot of American trends in religion and science fiction and so on. What's the degree of harmony or discord among this fractured multiplicity of nations of Islam? They're rival groups. They don't have any relationship. I saw one video of Royal Jenkins, and that's Royal with two L's. He says, Royale wouldn't make any sense. (laughs) People want to call it Royale, he says. He says, that doesn't make any sense. It's Royal. He actually sees, Royal Jenkins actually wants to view not simply white people as the devil, but actually Minister Farrakhan as the devil. So this isn't friendly stuff here among these groups. But again, you know, these are rival groups. They all claim to be the true nation of Islam. So one would expect that it wouldn't be very friendly. Regarding this authorizing event that you were relating, September 17th event, to begin with, the term UFO itself is a misnomer here, yeah? That's right. Farrakhan acknowledges that. He says that we would understand it as an unidentified flying object. So I know I'm cutting you off here, but that's actually an important point. Because unlike ufology more generally in America, the Nation of Islam doesn't want to claim this as something universal. They own the UFO narrative. They are the key to understanding UFOs in America, and so are Black people. That's an important distinction here. Is it correct that on occasion Farrakhan has deftly implied that should he be interfered with by federal agencies that they would regret it? Yes. In, in a speech that I believe was in Chicago at the headquarters in 1986 called The Wheel and the Last Days, Minister Farrakhan basically threatened the U.S. government. And this is almost a quote, if I can get it correctly. And this, here's the quote. If I am just scratched by you, you will be totally destroyed. (laughs) Wow. So to your point, yes. This protects the nation of Islam. It protects Minister Farrakhan. It's just not clear to what extent the mother wheel also represents other Black people outside the nation of Islam. There's a bit of a hierarchy of Blackness here, where there's sort of a superior enlightened Blackness in the nation of Islam. On the other end of the scale are African-American Christians. They, They historically, they're just lost. But to some extent, at least in general, I would say that the mother wheel, at least symbolically, represents who black people are. One other thing, and then I'm going to stop for a minute. What black means in the nation of Islam is not what we mean in America. Blackness, I argue, in the nation of Islam is a transcendent category, as well as a surplus category. By transcendent blackness, I mean that there are also black people who are trillions of years old on Mars and Venus. That's number one. So on other planets. So blackness doesn't start here. So this stuff about black inferiority that wants to connect the meaning of black bodies simply to slavery and lynching, that's no good. Black people are trillions of years old. Just look at Mars and Venus. The second aspect is 
that blackness also refers to Native Americans, Asians, Latinos, and what we would call African-Americans. So this is why I talk about blackness as a metaphysical category or blackness as surplus. Because the symbol black that we use here can't hold all the meaning. It's so much more than the received category in the United States. And so, but I thought it was important to note that the Nation of Islam has members who are Native American, especially among the Hopi and the Navajo, who Minister Farrakhan has fought for when the government was trying to take their land in the 1980s. I should also note that in the 1980s, the Nation of Islam founded the Latino Nation of Islam, which is still in existence, and so on. And so what I'm actually saying here is that this mother wheel experience actualized in this world sort of the metaphysical blackness that was always present in the Nation of Islam's mythology. And if you look at the Nation of Islam, that you'll see they've always had relationships with Asian groups like Sun Young Moon and the Unification Church, Native Americans, Latinos, and I could go on and on and on. And I say this in some ways to disrupt this insular, anti-white, anti-Jewish narrative uh, that overdetermines interpretations of the nation of Islam. And I want to say they're mostly false. After all, how can we explain the fact that the nation of Islam also has an official relationship with Scientology? That Scientology trains members of the nation of Islam as auditors. And so almost nothing you read on the nation of Islam is actually going to be correct, especially in the popular media. Almost nothing in scholarship, and this might get me in trouble, actually gives us a real sense of who the Nation of Islam is because it's not dealing with this material. It's not dealing with the UFOs. It's not trying to make sense of it. And so what I'm arguing here is that subsequent to this experience that Minister Farrakhan claims on the mother wheel, this stuff becomes real in the world and enacted in the world. Their relations become fully interracial because remember, Black was always, this is the language of Elijah Muhammad, Black, brown, red, and yellow. That was always what they understood as Black. And so this relationship with Native Americans, Latinos, Asians, so on, make perfect sense. But again, subsequent to Farrakhan's experience, you see this expanding among all kinds of groups in the world and these relationships. As to the connection between Hopi cosmology and the Nation of Islam, do I vaguely recall an advanced human-non-human dynamic in Hopi cosmology? How does that integrate or remain discreet from what we're discussing regarding the Nation of Islam? It's hard for me to say, except to reiterate, that Native Americans were also understood as part of the original family in the Native Nation of Islam cosmology and as Black in that same cosmology. So I guess I could infer that there wouldn't necessarily be a conflict there. Because when the Nation of Islam talks about Black and they talk about these mother wheels, they're not just talking about African-Americans. They're talking about a much more expansive notion of Black. Although, and this is one of my criticisms, African-Americans or that particular instance of Blackness does seem to take on a little more importance in my estimation at least, than other aspects of it. 
but I don't think they'd see that as a conflict. Would they see it as analogous to the degrees in Freemasonry, a tiered progression of increasing orders of revelation? Does, does that make sense? It does. I'm just not sure that I would be able to answer that. I've just never read that, that there's any conflict in Native American. There's always an emphasis on the red man, historically the term, and the black man, quote unquote, as being unified. There's something special about that particular relationship. In fact, in that same speech that I was talking about, 1986, the will in the last days, Farrakhan says something pretty close to that. Going back to Freemasonry, by the way, this is where I think terms like master come from. Remember I said the founder of the nation of Islam was Master Fard Muhammad? To me, that probably comes from terms like Master Mason, which is, I think, what, the third degree, symbolic blue lodge, Freemasonry. And you see a lot of those kinds of things going on in the nation of Islam. One of their historic aesthetics is the fez. If you ever see older pictures of Elijah Muhammad, and I hope you'll Google it, you'll see Elijah Muhammad wearing a fez. Clearly, things that come from Freemasonry and Black religious groups that may have preceded the nation of Islam, like the Moorish Science Temple, in which you find all kinds of Freemasonry as well, influences and origin. So you see Freemasonry showing up in all kinds of ways in the nation of Islam. To what extent is this secret history of Mars and Venus elucidated? Does that remain amorphous and in the periphery? Is it unpacked? No, the nation of Islam, and I'm not sure who to attribute this to, Elijah Muhammad or Master Fard Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad said that the secret knowledge that, we're, that I'm calling the Yaqub myth, it's not my term, it, it pre-exists my use, was given to him by Master Fard Muhammad. So he attributes it, the secret knowledge, to Master Fard Muhammad. But Elijah Muhammad says that Master Fard taught him about Black life on other planets. And so he does talk some details. For example, they live to be up to 1,200 years old. They're eight, nine feet tall, and so on. So one does find details of Black life among the, the Black people on Mars and Venus in these, what used to be secret narratives of the nation of Islam. You can find them published now all over the place, but that didn't used to be the case. One had to be a member of the nation of Islam and present to get this secret knowledge. Now, of course, we're talking about it. I'm talking about it in my book. Why did that change? I'm not sure how it changed or when it changed. That's a really good question. Maybe there was a point in which the nation of Islam saw itself as expanding maybe in the 1970s. It's unclear. It's even unclear when the Nation of Islam actually started talking about the UFO openly. There are some references in the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a Black newspaper, in which Elijah Muhammad had a column that go back to maybe 1951, 1952, and he's talking about it there. But the Nation of Islam says that it goes back even before Roswell. What they argue is that when the FBI raided Elijah Muhammad's home in 1942, that the FBI also confiscated drawings of the mother wheel that belonged to Elijah Muhammad in 1942. And so this is one of their claims. And by the way, you can find all of this in 
Ilya Rashad Muhammad's book, UFOs and the Nation of Islam, which was published in 1913. And I know Ilya Rashad Muhammad, consider him a friend. I only want to point out that my article in the Journal of American Academy of Religion came out one year earlier, which centered UFOs in the thought of the Nation of Islam in 2012. I have to ask about the connection to Scientology, the interface and training between Scientology and the Nation of Islam. There's something I had zero knowledge of. Can you speak to that? What is known? Well, I wish I knew more about auditing and what that is. You may know more about it than I do. I haven't read a lot about Scientology, but what Minister Farrakhan says is that any tool that will allow Black people to break the bonds of mental slavery and Black inferiority and all the violence enacted against Black people over centuries is useful. And if auditing helps Black people think about themselves differently, then the Nation of Islam should take advantage of it. And so now there are hundreds of members of the Nation of Islam who are certified, I'm not sure what the term is in Scientology, as auditors. And so they're officially in relationship and have been at least a decade now, I believe. Another little detail on Jakob. I'm just inferring this from context, but wouldn't Jakob have been a person of color? Is that some odd mythological suicidal impulse? It is. So Jakob would have been a person of color. But according to, again, the same cosmological narrative, there's always been a certain percentage of the original people who were dissatisfied. And I think that number was 20%, something like that. Yakub arose from that 20% of the original people who were dissatisfied. And that's how they explain it. So even there, there's this sense that Blackness is not a monolith. So not only does it include Black, Brown, Red, and Yellow, to use Elijah Muhammad's term, even ideologically, Black people are diverse. And so there are some Black people who always think different, who are never satisfied with the current conditions and situation of of Black people, and even want power that will help them collude with technology and so on to destroy Black people. Can I ask about the unified language you made reference to earlier? Yes. Yes. I can't tell you much about that, except that in the narrative that comes up as one of the reasons why Yakub was dissatisfied, that among the original people, there were various languages that were spoken. And that was one of the discontentments of Yakub. There were others, but that was one of them. Yakub was motivated then to create an unlike people. That's the language that it uses, unlike people who would destroy the original people. And, and one of the ways that happened, according to the narrative, is Yakub was looking through a microscope one day as a child. And he noticed that within the black germ that there were these two people, right? And maybe you could read that as chromosomes, you know, dominant, recessive, and so on. But this is the language. And Yakub determined, Yakub was really brilliant, that he could graft out the darker gene such that at the end of that process, you're left with white. This also helps to explain genocide, black genocide, because when these babies were born as part of this process of genetic engineering, say a mother would have one black child, one brown child. They would have to kill the black child in order to 
continue lightening the race or creating uh, people who don't have color ultimately. So they'd have to come up with an explanation for what happened to you know, the dark child. And according to the narrative, and this is probably an allusion to the role that Christianity plays in genocide and slavery, they would say the child went to heaven. The child died and went to heaven. There were some other things that, that happened in that narrative. But again, my point is this narrative is really complicated in that it's really trying to explain all kinds of things, including Christianity's complicity in Black genocide and slavery and so on. And one of the other things about Yakub, and then I'll stop, is that around the same time that Yakub was experimenting with microscopes and so on, he found these two magnets. He tried to put the two magnets together, and he noticed that they repelled one another. And somehow he extrapolated from that, that if he created an unlike people, just like the magnets, that they would repel one another, that ultimately the unlike people who at the end of the genetic process became white would repel black people and kill black people. Again, all part of the nation of Islam through this very symbolic, highly creative language that borrows from all kinds of sources to try to explain the experience of black people in the world. People misread this narrative as anti-white. I read it as the opposite. I read it as not anti-white, but trying to explain enormously absurd experiences of violence that are hundreds of years old in relation to white people. So in other words, the narrative makes perfect sense to me, even though I don't see it as historical or scientific. I see it as symbolic, as mythologies are. To what extent does one find legitimate or genuine anomalous events attending the formation of these worldviews? Often in the paranormal, a sufficiently focused collective intention can generate events or amplify them. Have there been confirmation events of the type predicted, prophesied? I can only say that for Louis Farrakhan, there have been confirmation events. He points to his presence in Phoenix. I don't remember what year that was. You might remember where there was this UFO sighting over Phoenix. If you remember Battle Over the Skies of California, I can't remember what year that was, where the military actually shot at so-called UFOs over California. The Nation of Islam would point to all of these as evidence of who they are and the truthfulness of UFOs, which are misrecognized as UFOs, by the way, like you pointed out earlier. That's the mother wheel and these 1,500 baby wheels that people are actually seeing. And they would see these all as confirmation events, especially Minister Farrakhan. Whether I understand them as real or see them as real, I don't know that I can comment on that because I'm much more interested in what they make of them. And they do see them as confirmation events. They do claim, and when I say they, I mean not just Minister Farrakhan, but members of the Nation of Islam claim to have legitimately seen UFOs. There's a Facebook group, I'm sure there's probably an Instagram group called UFOs in the Nation of Islam, where they're talking about these kinds of things all the time. I'll also say that according to Elijah Muhammad, the early leader of the Nation of Islam from roughly 1930 three to 1975, he claimed that through telepathy, one could hear the mother wheel if one concentrated hard enough. Minister Farrakhan claims to have had experiences where he left his body. So we're talking astral projection. What I'm thinking about 
with another scholar who's actually a member of the Nation of Islam, Edward Muhammad, who teaches at University of South Georgia, is trying to reclaim and recover this paranormal aspect of the Nation of Islam that nobody writes about. That even the Nation of Islam has obscured because they want to talk about the mother wheel in terms of a real mechanical object and in terms of science. Even though there's all this stuff in the Nation of Islam that points to the paranormal as being something that they were really aware of and talked about, it's in their records. And so I'm actually working with Dr. Muhammad right now to write an article about that very thing that recovers the new age paranormal aspect of the nation of Islam that nobody's talking about, that nobody's writing about, in part because of their incessant views of the nation of Islam through the lens of race. And there's all this other complicated stuff that's actually just as important, if not more important. I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with race, but not in the way we're talking about it. This is, these are metaphysical notions of race. Again, blackness is on Mars and Venus. Blackness is not just African-Americans. It's, it's much more expansive. So I would say that if one looks closely enough, we can find all kinds of illustrations where the Nation of Islam suggests that these things are real in their experience, these paranormal experiences and UFOs. To what extent is the remainder of other phenomena relevant to the nation of Islam? For instance, whether that be non-human entities, UAP, UFOs, skinwalker, Tic Tacs, abductions, does the nation of Islam account for these other territories of the anomalous? Yes, so the nation of Islam does talk about many other accounts of UFOs, but again, they're going to center themselves. They say to understand all of that stuff, we need to be talking to them because they hold the key to what's going on and what all of that actually is. So they're not going to deny it. They're simply just saying that they're the key to understanding it and making sense of it all. Without them, we're always going to be chasing our tails around. That's their response to all of these other UFO narratives and encounters. For more information on Dr. Stephen Finley, check the show notes to hear part two of our conversation where we dive into Dr. Finlay's family history, which includes magic, conjuring, and Christianity. As you might imagine, they clash in a most captivating manner. To hear that glorious genealogy, just become a patron or a pluser. Patrons and plusers receive uncensored, totally nude versions of each episode. Upon receipt of payment, vestments are peeled from your preferred podcaster. Voila. It's high-definition treats for you disabile synesthetes. While Minus listeners trundle and trudge through sonic sludge, every blessed patron gets owl sex. At the $100 level, you are naked also, as well, in addition to... Nothing says sex like the sound of privates in your ear holes. It's probably illegal. It's certainly immoral. It must be spiritual. Yes, that is the sound of one hand clapping. That's true. Oh, the money back guarantee. I'm glad you asked. There are no refunds. Now use your counter intuition and click the link in the show notes so I can wriggle out of this bespoke Stuart Hughes diamond edition and sonically slow streak my way through the basement of your brain. Song of a Man Who Has Come Through 
Not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. A fine wind is blowing the new direction of time. If only I let it bear me, carry me. If only it carry me. If only I am sensitive, subtle, delicate, a winged gift. If only, most lovely of all, I yield myself and am borrowed by the fine, fine wind that takes its course through the chaos of the world like a fine, exquisite chisel, a wedge blade inserted. If only I am keen and hard like the sheer tip of a wedge driven by invisible blows. The rock will split. We shall come at the wonder. We shall find Hesperides. Oh, for the wonder that bubbles into my soul. I would be a good fountain, a good wellhead, would blur no whisper, spoil no expression. What is the knocking? What is the knocking at the door in the night? Is it somebody wants to do us harm? No, no, it is the three strange angels. Admit them. Admit them. The Ariel Phenomenon film is out. You can watch it by clicking the link in the show notes. Yes, it's $20. Just pay it. It's less than a pizza, and it's one of the most important films ever made on human, non-human contact. The filmmakers absolutely shed blood, sweat, and tears serving this project. They deserve every bit of support we can offer. I know the director, Randall Nickerson, and he is a hero for seeing this film to fruition. Ariel Phenomenon is an in-depth exploration of the seminal event in 1994, in which over 60 children experienced daytime craft landing. Entities emerged, and extended face-to-face contact occurred, which included telepathic communication and visionary events. This event should have changed the world. It certainly changed the world for the children present that day. One of them, Emily Trim, was a guest on Aliens and Artists, episodes 24 and 25, both highly recommended. Schoolyard landings are more of a thing than one might infer with a cursory glance. For a sampling beyond Ariel, pick up Preston Dennett's book, Schoolyard Encounters, 100 True Events, that is also in the show notes. The release of Ariel sparked an urge in me to revisit a number of other schoolyard landings, Specifically from 1977, these were bookended by myriad other craft and entity sightings in these areas which preceded and followed the schoolyard events I'm about to relate. One was at Broadhaven Primary School in Pembrokeshire, Wales. Another at Upton Priory Junior School in Macclesfield, England. Yet another was at the Ross E. Bull Primary School in Anglesey, again in Wales, where interestingly to me, at least, the students are taught in their native Welsh. God knows I'm butchering the Welsh pronunciation of that school, but I digress. Let's start with Broadhaven. Now, over 40 years ago, at the time this event made national and then international news. West Wales, February 1977, lunchtime. A total of 14 children between 10 and 11 years old reported seeing a silver cigar-shaped craft 
with a dome, land in broad daylight, and the field next to their school. Said to be similar in size to a double-decker bus, six of them see a tall humanoid entity in a silvery suit emerge from the craft. It was said to have odd, long ears. Now, get this part. Two hours later, at 3.30 p.m., the object was still there. The teacher, who asked to remain anonymous, also reported seeing a shiny, oval-shaped object with a dome in that same location. She also reported hearing a humming sound when the craft departed. A telegraph pole at the location was damaged where the craft had hovered. Expanding the radius from the school landing, lots of other sightings and events occurred in the following weeks. On multiple occasions, farmers reported herds of cattle as large as 150 head inexplicably being moved a mile away to a neighboring pasture in an instant. There were craft sightings, entity sightings by numerous residents in the area surrounding the school. Two weeks later, multiple adult witnesses reported the same craft at the school again, including an entity entering the craft. Several days after the Broadhaven mass sighting, students on lunch break at Newcastle under Lyme School witnessed, quote, a gray, flattened, cigar-shaped object moving overhead, end quote. According to the witnesses, the object moved slowly and was surrounded by a vapor or mist. It changed colors from orange to green before disappearing in the distance. The object was made visible for roughly 10 minutes. A month later, another sighting by 13-year-old Steve Taylor included a close encounter with the same type of entity. So close, in fact, that the Spitfire young Taylor attempted to punch the entity. The entity vanished before the punch could land. Forty years on, the witnesses have all remained unanimously loyal to their original accounts, including witness David Davies, who says the event made his life a misery as he was bullied and ridiculed, and nonetheless says the event is burned into his memory like a photograph. Also, in February 1977, at Rose Ebol Primary School in Anglesey, Wales, teacher Bronwyn Williams was supervising the children playing netball in the schoolyard when she spotted an object transiting above. She alerted the children. After the object vanished, she gave the students paper and pencils and had them draw what they'd seen. Each drew nearly identical objects, a cigar-shaped craft with a black dome on top. A formal report of the sighting was filed. Similar sightings, including entities exiting and re-entering the craft, were reported again and again in that area that year. Also in that same year, in October, children from Cheshire, ranging in age from 7 to 11, saw an object hovering above the trees adjacent to their school. Their teacher, Miss Hindmarsh, had the forethought to separate them, asking them to create artistic renderings of what they'd seen. These sketches eventually made their way into the Ministry of Defense. A remarkable consistency among the sketches was noted. You can see some of the drawings in the wonderful book UFO Drawings from the National Archives by David Clark. 
Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, past life regression, abduction, creativity as an esoteric path, contact with non-human entities, and also contemplative spiritual practices. Click the link in the show notes to book a session or go to theliminalmuse.com. Suckle your mama